This episode contains discussions of death and violence as described in the Bible. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Rebecca Godlove. Welcome to Retrofitted, a podcast for Xennials and the people who love them. Each week, we unpack, examine, and in some cases, radically rethink the way we, Gen Xers and Millennials, were collectively raised. We discuss everything from snack foods to classic rock to both historical and contemporary questions of ethics and religion. So I hope you're up for the challenge. On today's agenda, why is God so fickle? I have never tried to hide the fact that I am what could be considered a crazy cat lady. We currently have three fur babies. The gray and white old man of the bunch is named Thor, and he is the kind of cat that makes people dislike cats. He is judgmental, doesn't really care for people, begs at the table, and is clingy and needy at the exact moments when you need him not to be clingy and needy. Our next boy cat is Kylo Ren, our beautiful, gentle, and slightly dopey house panther. He is my favorite, and I am open about having a favorite. We adopted him, or rather, he adopted us, just two weeks after my beloved Lady Freya the Grey passed away suddenly. I did not think I was ready for another cat right away. In fact, I was sure I wasn't. But he knew that I was, apparently. We brought him home from a wonderful cat rescue here in Pittsburgh called Kitty Queen. And we were so delighted with the experience that we've become supporters of the shelter. um, And we have actually helped two of our friends adopt cats from their location as well. And both of those kitties are now in very happy, healthy, and safe homes. So I'm happy for everyone involved. Our third cat, rounding out the strange and uh, mostly unholy trinity in our house, is Princess Zelda May Peach, a former barn kitten and little ginger girl. She was the runt of her litter and was bottle-fed by hand by my fellow cat mama Jordan, who rescued her and her litter mates from a pretty sad local hoarding situation. Our little firecracker was originally named May, and Jordan actually handpicked her out for us. She knew my husband would crack if she sent us a picture. So she did. And he did. Zelda is the only other little lady in this household, and she certainly helps me keep all the boys in line. You would never be able to tell now that she was the runt of her litter. She is absolutely among the three cats and my children, the Alpha, although sometimes we still let Thor think he's in charge. And you know what they say about cats? They are 
finicky and fickle. It's why a lot of folks just aren't interested in having cats in their household. It seems as soon as you find a brand of cat food they like that's reasonably priced and doesn't upset their sensitive tummies, you buy it in bulk from Costco and they decide that no, it is absolute trash and they won't even look at it. However, if you are a parent or caregiver of any kind, then you know the creature that trumps even the house cat in terms of mercurial eating habits is the standard American preschooler. Yes, folks, if you have not participated in taking care of a small human being, you probably have not seen fickle. <laughs> My four-year-old refuses to eat macaroni and cheese if the noodles are not the right shape. Come to think of it, my seven-year-old turns it down if it's too cheesy. And now I'm wondering if he's actually my kid because I would be perfectly happy living on dairy for the rest of my life. My preschooler will not eat meat in any form except pork rinds. And I have known him to nibble a piece of bacon every so often, but only like half a piece. If the bread on his peanut butter sandwich, and that's peanut butter only, no jelly, has too many visible seeds or grains in it, I might as well just throw the whole thing in the trash. Although he does eat the crusts. This is fickleness in its most frustrating form, the kind that requires superhuman patience and apparently endless wads of cash. Kids make picky cats look easy to please. Well, in fact, basically anything my children won't eat, my old man Thor will. He has been known to devour not only leftover chicken nuggets and cold cuts, but also broccoli, green beans, and even carrots. I'm pretty sure he has a more balanced diet than my children do. But if we're talking seriously fickle, let's talk God, shall we? One of the things I repeatedly hear from both believers and non-believers, and something I have wondered myself is, why is God so fickle? Why, why is he so petty? Why does he command the ancient Israelites not to kill, then turn around and decimate entire families, clans, armies, even children and babies for what seems to be petty anger or jealousy? And I am asked if God is even real, why does he not intervene when people are attacked or murdered? Why does he allow children to be swept up into human trafficking? Why does he allow thousands, probably millions, of women to be regularly abused by their husbands and partners? Why does he allow childless couples to repeatedly experience the horror and tragedy of infertility when unplanned but completely healthy pregnancies seem to produce unwanted children all around them. Why does he not stop a hurricane in its tracks? Before I attempt to dig into these questions, I need to make it crystal clear that I am not, in any official capacity, a theologian. I do not have formal degrees in philosophy or divinity, nor do I consider myself an apologist Although, interestingly, the slant of this podcast has been distinctly towards apologetics these past several episodes, so maybe I need to rethink how I see myself. As I know, I have hurled myself into the deep end with this topic. I'm sort of dog paddling in these waters alone out here, so please be patient with me as I find my voice and my bearings. 
Uh, first up, for me to even begin to answer this question, I'm assuming that you, my dear listener, have at least a basic conception of God as explored in the Bible uh, and you're at least open to discussing religion regardless of your own belief system. So even if you're just a wee bit open-minded or curious, this conversation may appeal to you. As I mentioned in last week's episode, I too have grappled with the seemingly huge disparity between the actions of the God of the Old Testament and those of the God of the New Testament. In fact, the reason I'm even focusing on this topic right now is because of my church youth group. Turns out, kids have these questions too. Recently, one of the young men asked me while we were discussing the story of Tamar and Judah, which I also discussed in the last season of the podcast, well, he asked, why would God kill people? So, Jason, this one is for you, sir. Why does God kill? The easiest answer and the simplest way out is also the least satisfying. God does what God does because he is God. Per Isaiah 55, 8, My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. So there we have it. We are unable to comprehend the way the Lord works because we are incapable of thinking like him. We were, after all, created in the image of God, but we are not a carbon copy of him. We are kind of like ignorant children, the same way a child, mine perhaps, doesn't understand the importance of vitamins and minerals to help nourish the human body and will eat, like me, only cheese if allowed, I too do not understand the vastness of God's wisdom. God creates lives and he ends them. He builds up civilizations and decimates them. He is simply God and he does what he chooses. Now technically, technically that is answer enough for someone who truly believes that the Bible is the divinely inspired word of God. However, as someone who is excessively curious, even to a fault, I can't help but think that that answer comes off as a, because I'm the dad, that's why. Now, technically, that is answer enough for someone who truly believes that the Bible is the divinely inspired word of God. However, as someone who is excessively curious, even to a fault, I can't help but think it comes off as a, because I'm the dad, that's why, kind of response. And just like my own kiddos think that kind of response is uh, vague and unfulfilling, I feel the same way about using just this single verse in reply to such a big and potentially faith-shattering question. Even if that is true, and yes, I believe it is, I also believe there is much more to say about this topic than that. How do we simultaneously embrace the loving, healing, compassionate, and patient Jesus of the Gospels while wrapping our heads around verses like these? Numbers 11, 1. Soon the people began to complain about their hardships, and the Lord heard everything they said. Then the Lord's anger blazed against them, and he sent a fire to rage among them, and he destroyed some of the people in the outskirts of the camp. Deuteronomy 2, verses 32 through 35. Then King Sion declared war on us and mobilized his forces at Jehaz. But the Lord our God handed him over to us, and we crushed him, his sons, and all his people. 
we conquered all his towns and completely destroyed everyone, men, women, and children. Not a single person was spared. We took all the livestock as plunder for ourselves, along with everything of value from the towns we ransacked. 1 Samuel 15, verses 2 and 3. This is what the Lord of Heaven's armies has declared. I have decided to settle accounts with the nation of Amalek for opposing Israel when they came from Egypt. Now go and completely destroy the entire Amalekite nation. Men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, and donkeys. Okay, wow. Killing babies. <laughs> that alone, how? How? <laughs> Is this possibly the same God who calls children a blessing dozens of times between the Old and New Testaments? How can we worship and trust a God who seems not only hypocritical, but out and out cruel and bloodthirsty? Well, the first thing we need to do is something I have been emphasizing pretty much every other episode or so especially when we are dealing with topics that are particularly shocking, scandalous, or otherwise unsavory to us as modern readers. We do need to take the Bible as a whole. We are so good at cherry picking or slicing like pie the most appealing verses and pieces we want to serve in church, on social media, to our friends and families. The Old and New Testaments are meant to exist together, these strangely symmetrical images of sacrifice, obedience, law, and death before and after Jesus Christ's appearance on the scene. Now, during Jesus' lifetime, there was no such thing as the Old Testament. He pulled his teachings from the Pentateuch and several of the writings of the prophets. He also quoted Psalms, resulting in over a dozen Old Testament books being quoted specifically by Jesus in the New Testament. Now, ultimately, he recognized these scriptures as divinely inspired, inherently infallible, and simply put, he introduced himself as the culmination of centuries of murky prophecy and poignant psalms, and also as the long-promised offspring of Genesis 3.15, the one who was to crush the head of the serpent. Jesus served the God of the scriptures. Jesus identified as his father, the same creator who commanded the ancient Israeli armies to destroy their enemies, to put to the sword oppressive tribes, and to even execute sinful members of the Hebrew community. This makes it almost harder to reconcile than before, because during his time on the earth, Jesus walked in almost incomprehensible love, mercy, and compassion. The Gospels make it clear that the Messiah who walked among men was deeply moved by the pain and suffering he saw around him. He healed skin diseases, blindness, fever, deformity, hemorrhage, deafness, and mutilation with no request of payment and counseled his followers to do the same as recorded in Matthew 10, 8. He taught in such a way that all community members had access to him, both the respected religious leaders as well as the pagan foreigners among them. As I discussed in the previous episode, Jesus was working in a very human way to remove barriers between people and God. He very publicly brushed aside the demanding and 
usually petty rules and regulations that the Pharisees had slapped on top of God's commands. He appealed to his followers to love each other, to forgive, and to treat their neighbors with peace and kindness. He preached humility, loyalty to God, and gratitude. I won't list every single verse here, but just check out the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, and you'll see it all laid out there. Now, while in these chapters, there's a lot of the same content that's found in the Ten Commandments, and yeah, even the same stuff as in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, neither of which are known for being particularly warm or fuzzy books of the Bible, here it's relayed through the mouth of a person who has openly and repeatedly shown himself to be tender-hearted and gentle. So it kind of hits different. There's a hope in it rather than a fear of condemnation. There's an undercurrent of, yes, you can do this, rather than an overtone of, you'd better get this right. Encouragement more than domination. I'd go so far as to say a presentation of peace rather than punishment. So how is Jesus ultimately a reflection of God the Father, the one who ordered the angel of death to destroy thousands of firstborns in Egypt in Exodus 11? Well, it's a matter of legality. Let's flip on back to the Old Testament. Even though the first recorded death of a human in biblical history happens quite early on with Cain killing Abel in chapter 4, God does not explicitly forbid the killing of another person until after the flood, stating to Noah in Genesis 9 verse 5, And I will require the blood of anyone who takes another person's life. If a wild animal kills a person, it must die. And anyone who murders a fellow human must die. If anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands. For God made human beings in his own image. Now, be fruitful and multiply and repopulate the earth. God was resetting humanity here and with a clearer definition of how people are supposed to treat each other. As all humans are created in God's image, all are precious and reflect God himself. To take away the life of another person, and take here is implying that the taking is done willfully and irreverently, that murderer must be put to death. Blood must atone for blood. But if killing is forbidden, why does God do it? And why does he command his people to do it? The answer is shockingly simple, actually, and something we've already discussed this season, mistranslation. Or, if not mistranslation, at least imperfect translation. The sixth of the Ten Commandments is frequently translated as thou shalt not kill. However, the word used in this verse in the original Hebrew was not chareg, or to kill. The commandment originally read, Lo tirtach, which meant do not murder. The definition of murder by most standards of today as well as those of ancient Israel do not include the death of those killed in self-defense in times of war or by accident. The simplest definition of murder is the unlawful and premeditated killing of another person. It gets kind of particular here and our modern sensibilities still lead us to scratch our heads but if we believe that God's law is just, 
and that he is holy, unable and unwilling to dwell in the presence of unrepentant sin, then when he commands his people to go to war, then the killing of the enemy is justified and lawful, meaning that it's not murder and therefore does not break the commandment. God is not reneging on his command, nor is he devaluing human life. All blood must be paid for by blood. The enemies God sent his people against were criminals in one way or another. They had either repeatedly wronged God or his people. Okay, we don't like that. We want, we desperately want God to serve the purpose of the loving father only. The just and righteous side of him is distasteful. It's judgy, pompous, because our worldview today tends to praise people for doing things their own way, for being self-reliant, for following their own path and finding their own truth. It's almost unimaginable that a benevolent God could ever pass or allow judgment on those he loves. For whatever reason, so many of us have either grown up or adopted a very one-sided view of God. Either he is, as he was for me, a stern taskmaster just looking for an excuse to punish you, or he is sort of a free love, hippie-ish, hands-off, anything-goes kind of guy who just wants you to be happy. As with most things in life, the truth is somewhere in the middle. If you are a parent yourself, this will make more sense. As a parent, you do want the best for your child. You want your kids to be the best versions of themselves they can be. You do everything in your power to teach your child how to properly interact with others, how to express feelings in a healthy way, how to stay safe. You want your child to have flourishing friendships and relationships. You also know that allowing your children to do anything they want is a recipe for disaster. If left to his own devices, as I mentioned earlier, my four-year-old would eat nothing but cheese pizza and breakfast pastries for weeks at a time. Actually, so would my husband. My seven-year-old would be glued to the tablet, desperate to defeat just one more level of his favorite game. They need me to teach them how to safely cross the street, when to trust adults and when not to, how to care for their own bodies and respect other people's bodies. They need me to show them how to be gentle to animals and how to get dressed and how to talk to their friends and to grown-ups. And even with a lot of the most up-to-date, clinically endorsed gentle parenting techniques, there are still consequences for bad choices. If God is referred to and refers to himself as a father over a dozen times in the Old Testament and over 300 times in the New, it's clear that he wants us to understand our relationship with him. He could have called himself exclusively the commander or the enforcer or the master or anything he wanted. But father is how he wants us to see him. Now, a caveat here. I know that many of you who are listening right now have either broken or non-existent relationships with your biological fathers. I went to be sensitive to you and to that fact. So I understand that the word father might churn up negative emotions inside you and that is completely valid. So I want to be clear about how the scriptures define a good father, even if your own dad wasn't one. Now I'm going to include the verses I reference here on my website as it'll start to get a little too jumbled if I include each one here in the description. 
So per various scriptures, a father is to be compassionate and patient towards his children. He is to instruct and discipline his children and teach them scripture. He is to protect them. He is to treat his children as a blessing. He is to treat their mother with love, understanding, and honor. A father is permitted to fight on the behalf of and defend his children. A repeated theme in scriptures is that a father is responsible for disciplining his children. That's not to say that moms or other caretakers are excused from this. But it's clear that a dad's role is to teach a child how to live well, and that includes consequences for misdeeds. Fathers are to care about their children's futures, not just for their present happiness. And okay, yeah, killing your kids' enemies is a bit extreme, for the most part, as is killing your kids and their friends for misbehaving. So even with this analogy, some of God's actions in the Old Testament just seem off the charts extra. We have been given free will, and therefore God will not control our choices, the choices of any of us, even the choices that lead to bad things. But he acknowledges that there will be consequence for sin and disobedience. Again, sounds kind of brutal, but isn't that how we operate too? We create laws and people are fined or jailed or executed for breaking them. And that's something else to remember. There were many, many instances in which God's people, both individuals and the community as a whole, were given plenty of opportunity to change their actions and attitudes. Knowing the consequences, they chose poorly anyway. It comes down to God being holy. If this is something you believe, then you also have to accept that God cannot ultimately allow sin to persist. And even though death seems like it's totally out of proportion compared to the crimes listed in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, we also need to remember that the law was constantly before the Israelites. They all knew it. They were all taught it. These commands were not secretive. They were not intentionally confusing. They were clearly laid out. For the agreement between God and his people to be maintained, the people had to live differently than the tribes, clans, and nations around them. We also need to remember that many of the laws and consequences given in those books were exclusively for the ancient Israelites, and that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus changed all the rules. Blood atoned for blood, but instead of animal sacrifice or stonings, Jesus offered his own life. Now, to me, this is just another example of how the whole Bible needs to be taken together. It's not that the God of the Old Testament is wrathful and the God of the New Testament is gentle. God doesn't change. But the bridge created by Jesus between God and man allows us a measure, a huge measure, of grace and forgiveness that Old Testament believers did not have access to under the Old Covenant. Now, I can't answer the questions individually about why God allows certain things to happen and doesn't allow other things to happen. I don't want to dismiss that question because it's something that so often comes up and it is so often dissatisfactorily answered. I really wish I had chapter and verse for every question, every time I've been asked, why did God allow my friend with cancer to die? Or why did God not stop this car accident. I, I don't know. 
because I'm not God. And for those of you who are wondering about terrible things that have happened in your life, terrible things that have been done to you, please believe me that there is forgiveness, but there's also reckoning. There is also a time when people will have to face what they've done to you and to your loved ones. And so maybe it's possible that that wrathful, vengeful God of the Old Testament that everyone seems to dislike, maybe that aspect of him will be what gets you through a difficult time in your life. Maybe knowing that what happened to you was seen and just because it happened, that doesn't mean it was approved. Maybe that will allow you some sense of peace. I hope that's the case for you. And I hope that in your mind, in your heart, in your soul, you're able to marry together that God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. Because when Jesus said, if you want to see the Father, just look at me, that tells me a lot about the character of God. He did not choose to send Jesus to us as a, a rampaging soldier. He didn't come to us as this wealthy king. He didn't come to us as an assassin. He didn't come as a commander. He didn't come as any of those things that we often uh, consider God's attributes in the Old Testament. He didn't come with a sword. He didn't come with you know a torch to burn us down or a pitchfork. He came with healing. And he came with patience and peace. And he came with really a new way to live. He came with a new way for us to see God. And it is my sincere hope and prayer that if you don't see God that way already, that you can look to the example of Jesus and maybe rethink what you've been taught about God or how you have seen God your whole life. If you want to discuss this topic more, I am happy to do that with you. You can just reach out to me and I would love to have a conversation with you.